So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, y'all. Welcome back. Uh, we're back here today, first bite, night, noon. I hope that you are listening and loving it. Uh, we're going to start off with a quick reminder that if you're looking for us, you can find us on at First Bite Instagram or at First Bite Facebook page. And we love hearing your feedback and we love it when you tell us what you want more of. So be sure to message us. Okay. So 
To set the stage for today, y'all know how I love me some interprofessional practice because when we collaborate with our colleagues from other disciplines, that sets the stage for interprofessional education, which then turns around and encourages to seek out and engage in interprofessional practice again, which opens our hearts and minds for more interprofessional education and It becomes this big, beautiful circle of awesomeness, right? It's a very technical word, awesomeness. And folks, that's what we are engaging in today, a happy circle of interprofessional practice and interprofessional education with an amazing occupational therapist, Dylan Hartley, OTRL from the University of Pretoria, South Africa, and co-owner of Advanced Therapy Solutions Incorporate in Greenville, South Carolina. And y'all, he is here today to shed light on a topic that I haven't heard of, and much less, I'm a little embarrassed to admit, I'm kind of hesitant to even say the word lest I get it wrong. So Dylan, thank you for coming on First Bite. And what is this word that you're going to educate us on, sir? (laughs) Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you about something I'm pretty passionate about. In fact, I'm very passionate about. It's called polyvagal theory. And my little textbook pocket guide uh, sort of sums it up for me. And it's the transformative power of feeling safe. And it's uh, about my journey in terms of learning how I have grown as a clinician and therapist, a person, and certainly for me, a framework on how I could potentially help others. Awesome. Oh, I love this. The pa- well, good. <laughs> the education of feeling safe. Okay. The transformative so, power of feeling safe. Yes. Okay. This is, you don't, you don't know me from Adam. So hi, Dylan. Welcome to First So nice to meet with you. Are we going to be talking for several days or is this just for an hour? This is, this is for an hour, but Erin did tell me, she warned me. She goes, Michelle, just remember between the two of y'all, y'all are going to go every which away. So stay on topic. I was like, yes. Now this is, this is fantastic because a lot of our patients and their families have PTSD from complicated pregnancies, from NICU stays. I personally am a domestic abuse survivor from a very violent ex-husband. So I can tell you that feeling safe is is huge. I'm also jumpy. When there's a loud crash, I jump. Still happens. Apparently, I haven't fully integrated my fear response. I can't. There's a there's a well, we're going to talk about that today, but but you know we can we can unpack that a little bit later. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. You know, I'm an <laughs> occupational therapist. Um, but you know, it, it forms you know this this biology of play and yes. and this uh, biology of feeling and engaging in, in social engagement. And we're all we're all in the business of supporting uh, the first bite of a child or the or being present for the eye contact that says I'm leaving my world and I'm coming into your world and what that looks like. And and there are some really profound, Dr. Porges would say, phylogenetic patterns. There are patterns that and genetically predisposed uh, sort of responses that we have to our environment and more importantly to others that set the stage for our capacity later in life and our resilience later in life. So it's a really interesting topic. And I think you'll find that the river that we are going to be talking and going down flows underneath 
all of the earth. It's, it's, it's the undertone, I think, of all of our social engagement and all of our interaction from peer interaction within context of um, the clinic uh, or the home or the parental parents interaction or the, the guided support component of a caregiver to the response of the child. So uh, it's a nice framework that explains that process. And so for me, it's very, very powerful. In fact, I think I was listening to a podcast a podcast of Dr. Porges, and he, he explains polyvagal in his own terms as the explanation of how our physiological states affect our psychological, behavioral activities and our health. And our autonomic nervous system is primed and engaged to be purposeful in and supporting all of those different functions. And so we can touch base on all of that, if you like. Yes. You made me think of the turtle, the Native American story I grew up hearing, where the turtle carries the world on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. It feels like this is the source of all other aspects of life. It really is, I think. And, you know, it's, it's I think, what makes us somewhat uh, human, familiar, right? And, and so we have that startle reflex that you were talking about that we have that could be hypervigilant. And, you know, it's really the predisposition of the individual plus their environment that sort of tunes in our perception. And uh, in polyvagal theory, it's called neuroception. It is that subconscious awareness of our environment, of the tone of voice of a person, um, their eye contact, that gives us cues for safety or danger. And we can either get those safety or danger cues legitimately, which is what saves us and what rescues us and what keeps us going and is actually very valuable and you know gives us that sense of okay i need to hold back a little bit but then if we misinterpret that can really railroad our potential for social engagement and connecting with someone in fact in polyvagal theory it explains how in some cases there's a dissociation from the person or their body to protect themselves, which is actually a parasympathetic nervous response. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic that gives a framework to what we could do about it and how we can act and how we approach someone and all those good things. I have so many questions. Okay. Start right. at the beginning. We, yes. <laughs> okay. It's okay. This is great. Take me from the beginning of your experience. How did you, I I know the field of occupational therapy is incredibly large because it's, so how did you go from South Africa studying OT to here to having this be one of your, your, your passions? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a small mining community and called Cottonville outside of Johannesburg. And my dad was an electrician. My mom stayed home. Mom, she was a, a graduate for a pharmacy degree, but she she raised me. But I got I stuck at birth, and so I had a very traumatic birth. They didn't have any incubation at the time, and so I had a forceps birth, and I was born and needed resuscitation. And they didn't have. I was born in a nunnery. And so I, they didn't have incubation. And so for the first six year, six months of my life, my mother described me as being really stiff. She could hold my head and my heels would touch the bottom of the, um, the bath. And so uh, essentially decerebrate by 
the description. And so I had a lot of seizures. I had a lot of ADHD type symptoms. I was very hypervigilant in my early life. I don't have very many memories of that time. I was, I think, a great frustration for my poor father. And he was an abuser, you know, physical and emotionally. And so I kind of grew up in this world of dissociation, trying to prove myself and trying to find a path. And I was in the third grade and I couldn't read. And then they realized that I had double vision. And I saw an expert by the name of Professor Salman Super. I saw an occupational therapist, uh, Mrs. Spotterswood. She was a British lass. Wait, what was her name? Mrs. Spotterswood. Yes. Okay, I can do that. So a little African boy getting, you know, OT from this British lady. And so I, I was a patient. I was an OT kid. And as the uh, as the evolution goes, and I got into high, you know, high school and obviously recovered to some degree um, of my capacities and my learning skills. And I had learned strategies on how to visualize things versus write them down because um, I couldn't read well. And I was still blending words and things like that. My reading comprehension was very, very poor. I think my IQ, my reading, because the reading comprehension was in the 60s, but my verbal IQ was a little higher. And, <laughs> Probably uh, extremely higher, friend. <laughs> yeah, I kind of met in the middle, I think, somewhat. And yeah, and so when it came a time to pick a career, I wanted to do for others that was done for me. But I carried all this weight of my journey and, you know, my father's control and, and all these things that, uh, you know, and I grew up during apartheid and during a war and, you know, I got drafted into the military, you know, for the war in Angola and Nelson Mandela was released. And anyway, so I came to the United States. Uh, I was a coach for the South African wheelchair basketball team in the Olympics in 96. I got invited, met some really amazing people that were paraplegics and were in sports. And so um, I had the opportunity to move to the States and, you know, the rest is history. I decided to stay and start a practice and as the evolution of my practice uh, came about, I got really into sensory processing and how the sensory systems impact function. But I realized along the way that I would regulate or help support the regulation of a child or an adult for that matter. And all these emotions would come up in this aggression or this frustration or the shutdown. And so I realized that there's this whole other world that I was not even aware about because I didn't even really identify it in myself, this emotional world and the suppression world. And that very often how we interact with our world, interact with other people, how we perform activities has both an emotional, um, a sensory and a cognitive component to it. And so it expanded my base. And so I started really digging into that. At the same time, I started teaching certification classes for interactive metronome and uh, integrated listening systems or specialty techniques. And I got exposed to a lot of clinicians um, and a therapist that kind of opened my eyes to this realm of um, self-exploration because quite honestly, it's really, it's really impossible to regulate a two-year-old if you're dysregulated. You can you can do all the sensory activities in the world and all the heavy work in the world, but when you come in with an anxious predisposition about what might happen or when they're going to throw something at you, they can smell it. And therapeutic presence. That's right. Yes, it's, it's everything, right? Yes, yes. Um, it will make or break your sessions in your day. Absolutely, it really will. Absolutely, mm-hmm. it will. And so I then and then I realized that I don't regulate very well, and I have to. <laughs> 
I have to regulate myself. And we all know this as clinicians. We all know this as therapists that we all have the therapist that we can just gel with. And typically that person has the same arousal state that we do. If we're like super hyper aroused, then we love and we do great with the kids who are also hyper aroused because they're matching our energy and we're not working that hard. But when we have to change our arousal state to meet where the child is, that's really hard work. And those are the sessions when you, at the end, you're like, oh, I exhausting. need to take a break. That's right. It's exhausting, but it is a capacity. And then I learned that you can learn that and you can learn to regulate yourself. In fact, when I am working with a child and I, and I see the kids in our practice that have the most trauma and the most aggression and the most, the most challenging of our young friends, I have learned that the, the most effective way to de-escalate a child's aggression or their emotional state is to think about yourself. And I literally draw inward and upward versus horizontally. So I, I just use the imagination of if you, if you impose your calm state on someone or your state and you're thinking about them, you, you're still you're still in their bubble, you're still in their circle. And so I learned that when you draw a circle around yourself and you take the deep breath and you focus on your breathing and you take your regulated state and you imagine what it would be like for them to be regulated, they take a deep breath and join you. And whether it's feeding and whether it's in engagement, whether it's in having an idea and sharing it, it's contingent upon it. And in polyvagal theory, you, you, the capacity for social engagement and communication is contingent upon feeling safe. When you are in fight or flight or in death fainting, or if you're in uh, the state of freeze, none of those happen because you dissociate from it. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a pattern. Mm -hmm. We have talked a lot about therapeutic presence and emotional intelligence. And I know We've talked a lot about that with my actual graduate student clinicians, even to the point that I've had um, our one of our school clinical counselors come and speak with the students. And actually, we have a First Bite episode next month about grace and grief and how to give care for the caregiver, because this is so critical. But... One piece that I have found as a clinician, especially having gone through this trauma as an adult, is that we have to recognize it within ourselves that we can be the source that's throwing, for lack of a better phrase, a monkey wrench into the session. And that you have to grow your emotional intelligence, which means self-care. It may mean counseling. It may mean praying. It may be exercising for me personally because of the ADD, ADHD. I can tell you when I have not exercised sufficiently because that regulates my energy level. And y'all, this is key. This whole, all these pieces are built upon one another. And self-care is more than a bubble bath and hot chocolate and wine, although those are delightful aspects of self-care, that self-care is more than that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm sure you really into bubble baths and hot cocoa, right, Dylan? That's your jam. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you might be surprised. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you might okay. be surprised. All right. So with this polyvagal theory, theory. Mm -hmm. how, and I'm glad I said it right. Huzzah. Yeah. yeah. How does it work? How do we, 
how do I, as a speech language pathologist, assess for this within my tiny humans? Sure. Uh, and so let me go back to basically the three different, I don't want to say stages, but there, there are three different states that our autonomic nervous system functions under. And these three different states are related to your vagal response and sympathetic system. So you're, we, we've learned in school that you have a sympathetic system that is heightened, it's myelated, it's really fast, it protects us from fighter, you know, it's our fight or flight response. It's when we perceive danger and we respond to it by either fighting or fleeing, right? And so a sympathetic response is to protect us from the world around us, to, uh, to perceive inherent dangers. There are cognitive processes that lay over that in terms of separation from a mother, for example. Am I going to be okay? That idea that I could hold her image for a while and know cognitively that she's not gone forever, she's just going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there is a cognitive overlay that supports this idea that I might be afraid, but I can manage it because there, there are cues that I'm picking up that uh, an awareness that I'm picking up as the child develops to uh, the appropriateness of that response. Uh, our parasympathetic nervous system and our vagus nerve is our regulator. It is our system or our nerve and our system that is almost almost 80% afferent. So it tells us about how our body is doing a visceral. So it is sensory. It's a sensory nerve. And it tells us uh, it has a, the, the gut component to it about how our gut is feeling and how our body feels. But it alerts us to our internal state. And there are two components of the vagus nerve that are important to think about uh, in terms of these states, right? Uh, the first is our protective state. So the vagus nerve also protects us like our sympathetic nervous system into what is called a dorsal vagal response. It is our death feigning. It is the most primitive part of our uh, ancestry in terms of our capacity to dissociate. Uh, you see this in trauma individuals where their, their body goes into a state of shock where they don't remember all the events. They, they go into a protection mode. They, they basically are immobilized. Uh, There's a defecation component to that as well where in a more chronic state of this polyvagal sort of dorsal vagal response in the literature it leads to a dissociation from your body where you live in your imaginary world where we see a lot of the children on the spectrum where this world is just so overwhelming so dangerous so many things going on. it's just safer to live in spongebob world or it's just safer to live wherever wherever it is, right? And they dissociate from people. They don't don't have access to their genetic predisposition to want to make a connection with people and to reach out into that world because of their fear response. But the, the dorsal vagal response is most definitely there and it is your freeze, right? Then the rest of the vagus nerve 
is your heart regulator and your uh, social engagement system. And it's where that social engagement reinforcement comes from that is initiated in that mother or father or that caregiver child interaction that is associated with a safe feeling. The polyvagal theory is based on the feeling that you have in that moment of safety. Because, you know, if you remember and, and if you look at the, the ACEs studies, you know, this traumatic childhood event thing, yes, there are factors that can uh, create this sense of fight or flight and adverse reactions and attachment challenges as a result of events. But what's frightening for you may not be as frightening for me. I've got two boys and the one is incredibly sensitive. If I raise my voice, he thinks the world is going to end. If he hurts his knee, he's, I think he's amputated it, you know? That, yes, I have two boys as well. Mm -hmm. And Goose, Goose is my, he is my introvert. He is my empath. And that's right. And, he has a and, sensory sensitive disposition. Yes, You're right. Yes. Right, right, right. And Bear, Bear should be in bubble wrap because that kid, he will be the frat boy that says, here, hold my beer. And I fret over this because he is fearless. Yes. Because he doesn't feel pain like someone else. Well, right. I mean, unless there's a pretty lady around. Ask That's right. Aaron. <laughs> there you go. That's right. The attention-seeking component. Absolutely. Yeah. But He's got that down. <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, so, so the emotion that two of them might experience in the same situation may be very different. The one may not even hear the dryer go off. The other one hears the dryer and panics. And so that predisposition of sensitivity feeds into our autonomic system's response to the world. And suddenly we see hair dryers everywhere. And we self-limit ourselves from things that we might otherwise enjoy because in our brain we have this idea that potentially that hair dryer exists. And then I tell that son, your your sensitive one, that he's gonna be okay. Right? Hair dryer doesn't hurt. You're going to be fine. You can trust me. And something happens where that hair dryer does go off. Then the hair dryer didn't hurt him anymore. I did. And so then that's where you get that transition to attachment where you're supposed to protect me, mom, and you didn't. You're, and that's where you get that, that mad, right, that comes in. You're supposed to be there for me. You're supposed to go with me kind of feeling that comes with that emotion. But ultimately, our expression of our emotion in context of our early relationships build up our resilience because we all get frightened every now and then. We all have a startle reflex to some degree. We all become afraid of something that even your, your little bear, you know, he has a high threshold, which means he can tolerate a lot. But when he reaches his threshold, it's over. I mean, he feels it and he oh, doesn't yeah. know what to do with it because he doesn't have all that practice. And so in threshold theory, you have this idea that suddenly he feels something that he is not used to. And it's terrifying, mm -hmm. terrifying, literally my son. And we've done and we, he had trauma, labor stopped 14 times, all of the things. I mean, his list goes mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. bless his little bones. He'll go to red and we're like, Bobby, let's take some breaths, breathe through our belly. We That's don't right. need go red. To let's go. That's and we right. go through the color codes to get him back down. But, and the fact that you use the hairdryer example, 
spot on because that's a complaint that I hear from a lot of our patients' families when they go to take their little ones to the barber, especially if they're on the spectrum. And or my patients that have had hearing loss, that have had hearing tubes, bilateral eustachian tubes, because it amplifies, because it opens everything up. That's right. So, right. I mean, I can I can see that in my patients. And Goose, good God love him, he's eight years old, and he's still, you can see him clench when they come to blow the hair off the back of his neck. He knows after it's coming. After he gets it. Right. Yes, still. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like yeah. I need to send my children to you, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I would be honored, but you know, there, there's so much resilience that comes in just parenting and life experiences and, 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 you know, you have the adverse reaction. We all do, right? It's, it's what replaces it. It's the positive components over time that matter. In vagal theory, you want to build up what is called vagal tone. It is the response of your vagal system to a sympathetic or a perceived threat. Right, And the challenge in that is that it is experience and practice dependent. Meditation and um, like you said, your mindfulness, your, uh, that, that, your deep breaths, for example, they work as a result of an individual's capacity to access their calming system over time. I don't think I've ever met a child or person that I said, hey, take this deep breath, you'll feel better and it work. Because your vagal tone is not there. It does there. not work. <laughs> yeah. and, and for your, your young boy who's sensitive, he needs three times the vagal tone than the other guy does. Mm-hmm. Because he experiences that a lot. And so it builds over time for him, um, all those little, those little parts. And it's challenging in communicating with parents and helping them understand this because they, just, they potentially just see the behavior or they see defiance. And we need to be behavioral detectives in identifying what are these, the underlying mechanisms. When they hug, are they actually looking at mom? Are they really connecting? Are they asking for help or are they just attaching? You know, in, in early infant, how is the baby responding to mom's voice? Here's the perfect storm, right? The perfect storm is this neurotypical child that has this brain that's ready to develop. It has too many neurons to start off with. So pruning has got to happen, right? And it's hyper-connected and we, we go through life experiences. Now this hyper-connected brain of this little baby, for example, um, is, is sensitive to gravitation. It, it doesn't like to be thrown in the air. It's sensitive to movement of its head and it has a touch sensitivity as well. It's Once again, some kids have more sensitivity than others and they're trying to connect with their mom and their mom is working really hard to connect with them because they're not a happy kid. <laughs> they're a little agitated with everything because you got to feed them, you got to touch them, and then you got to lay them down to change the diaper. So here's the thing. So you have potentially a sensitive mom who is going to lay down a sensitive child backwards. So they're already not happy. They want to roll over, right? So then they want to, they're already feeling uncomfortable because of the touch. And then mom smells the the diaper and makes all these faces and runs out of the room and changes it and then is really aggressive about the change to get it done fast. So in terms of creating an opportunity in that moment to help their relationship, to help the young one work through or the infant work through that process and to find that connection 
is is railroaded right there and then you know down the road mom has to hold it and that's the thing you know you were saying about doing the haircut i had a mom two weeks ago came in and said i don't know what's wrong with our relationship we're really trying to work on our relationship but i had to hold him for two hours to get a haircut on thursday i'm like what is that doing to your relationship that's that's it right there yes so all the work that you're doing is railroaded by this event to cut his hair um, and how do we work around creating an experience that will will show will build up the resilience for that and the capacity we and all those are yeah, sorry, wait, you you gave those examples for a typically neurotypical child that's a I'm neurotypical thinking, child that's yes right. but then i get called to serve the least of these those are that's my right. humans and i'm I've had patients that were non-accidental trauma. They were um, physically, sexually, verbally accosted, abused, and and they have all of that baggage is an understatement, but they have all of that trauma that they're coming with and then add in the layer that we're still in a pandemic where our mm. facial cues are being covered so the children that do have visual capabilities of watching and monitoring, they're missing significant right. amount of feedback from their environment. That's right. And this is, this is a train wreck. It is. Yeah. It's a challenge. Aww. It's a challenge. But you know, the, the sense of safety, you know, comes from your neuroception and, and what you perceive in your environment. And we have the capacity to, to change the narrative, to change what it looks like for someone. And it starts with us, right? With, with what you bring to the table, what your neuroception looks like. We all, we all know what the creepy, well, I don't know what a creepy guy looks like, but the girls in the clinic do. And they're like, there's something weird about that dude. And I don't see it because my neuroception is not tuned in the way theirs is for that. And the key is to find what, where does this child, where does this, um, this infant, where does this person find their joy? And how can we tap into a sensory system and an emotional system and um, a vagal system to support that? And the good news in that, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the good news in that is that you can build that resilience and replace those memories. I adopted a boy at the age of 13 that was my wife's cousin's son, whose earliest positive memory was from five years old and grew up in a meth lab. And his parents were incarcerated. And so my wife and I brought in Michael at the age of 13, where I had to shave his head the first day because of the lice. And it was a traumatic experience for him, for both of us, poor guy. Um, and try and create a space where he could, he could feel safe. But he legitimately had his bags packed for two years. His backpack, we called, it was his security blanket. Like, I need, he needed the out. And it, it takes time. But there is, there is value in creating that sense. And what Dr. Porges uh, identified and did almost all of his research in polyvagal theory um, is that there are ways that we can access um, the sense of safety. And some of it is, and most of it is actually in the eyes and through sound. And so he realized that 
in terms of um, accessing and a portal into the sense of safety, it's not just what you can see in a mouth, but what you see around the eyes. And what he identified in, in individuals who had a flat affect, who don't, who, who don't, who lack prosody in their voice who have this stunted emotional interaction component to their play from trauma or developmental challenges or dissociation as a result of uh, this autism pattern, as a result of, you know, the, this, this desire for safety and this post-vagal response that you can access a portal for safety in different ways. And so he started doing a lot of research around that. And he spent 10 years developing what is now called the safe and sound protocol. And it's, uh, and he realized that if he could manipulate the frequencies of vocalizations, what makes us different than animals is that we can understand the intonation of voice and how voice can be soothing. Right. And how the mother's voice in particular can be soothing, but also remind you of not being soothing, but how there's this capacity to create the sense of safety then you, that you can then attach to a life experience like feeding or like changing or rolling over or moving from one environment to another. Transitions, exactly. Oh, that's, right, that's right, right, right. so critical. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I'm going to be okay because I don't know what's on the other side of that door and it might be a hairdryer, but I'm going to be okay. Right, because you don't know what's on the other side of the door. Um, so there are really way, there are ways to do that, and a lot of it has to do with your prosody and your voice. And so that one of the greatest books ever known um, is Play by Stuart Brown. It changed the way I practice and how play creates the scenario where safety, even though there's inherent risks, is worth it and creates this, this, this connection that in all mammalian animals leads to a social engagement or a pack-orientated environment. And all, all, all dog puppies play the same, whether they're a wolf or a Labrador retriever. But at some point, the experience, the hierarchy, and the wolf features and their way they play changes and the lab stays the same. We are perpetual players. And to really engage in self-help, we need to play. We need to play and experience joy. And if your joy is in the hot tub with a glass of wine, and it is joy <laughs> and not dissociation, not hiding, uh -huh. not decompressing, but joy, that is what, that's what kids see. Uh -huh. And... Erin and I have been practicing something. I don't know if she's been practicing it, but I've been practicing it for three weeks. And it is the animal bow. In the book, it describes a polar bear and a, wool, a dog. And the polar bear has been starving. Engage in this playful experience based on their introduction of their intent. So do we come into the room, all right, it's ready to eat. Who's ready to eat? You are ready to eat. Or do we come in? and have a playful eye gaze and exchange and trip and fall and create a laugh. 
you know, my son. I can tell you which one will be better. <laughs> yes, we all know this. We all know yes. this. But but it's so hard to be that mindful because we're in such a distracted world, and we're, you know, we we got to work on our goals. We got to get these things going, and you know, uh, I always tell in terms of in terms of of transitions, in terms of walking to a space. First, you regulate, then you connect, and then you speak. And mm-hmm. all of that is nonverbal. Those mm-hmm. kids who are hypervigilant, who are perceiving danger everywhere, they know you're coming. They know that you're, gonna, you're going to ask them to do something and it terrifies them. Mm-hmm. They're terrified. Yes. This. Okay. So, folks, for those of us in the home health world, our little ones are watching you from the window as you get out of Absolutely. your vehicle. They are watching your gait, your mannerisms. Check yourself before you wreck yourself and you wreck your hour. Do your regulation in your vehicle. Take a big deep breath. And then I walk in. Now, I, one little guy yesterday, we're, we're doing food challenges and he's He's doing amazing, but that's because we take the time to, at the start of the session, we're engaging. He, I let him set the tone with play. We play and do a little bit of language to kind of gear up for it. And yesterday it was colored. Oh my goodness. What are they? The colorful magnetiles. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yes. And we're holding them up and up. Oh, I see you shell. Shell is purple. Shell's not purple. And we play and play and then take a big deep breath. All right, Bobby, let's put our towels down. First we eat, then we play some more and transition over to eating. And I follow their cues throughout when they need a break. This is the, we have to get them to the table, but they have to give us permission to borrow a phrase from Marsha Dunklein. They have to if we follow the research of best practice for feeding, we don't force our children. We have the trust. And now we can add in the polyvagal theory as to why, because it has to be a safe experience. Yes. Oh my gosh. You're like the missing wheel here, Dylan. Oh, you kind of, <laughs> it is amazing. And you know, in practice, I've been bowing to these kids. Yes. And- that difference is amazing. That's like I am ready to play. We're not going. We're going to do handwriting at some point. Maybe we're going to do some work, but I am here to play, and they get it. You don't have to say it. You don't have Chewbacca to say it. literally bows to me when. You, sorry, that's my big German mm-hmm. Shepherd black child. But every morning when I come down the stairs, he does a big bow, and then like he does like a fake snort sneeze, mm-hmm. um, and then he's ready to like start his day. But that's right. he was a rescue of a rescue dog, and he's got some trauma. He's got some quirks, but he literally does do the bow first. Absolutely, and so should we, yeah. and we do that. You know, in terms of our social engagements and the way we walk in, but you know, and I know by the way someone walks into the room and how they approach us, potentially what their intent is. Crucial conversation, hot or cold. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. And you know, my son, and then you have reciprocal memory, which which is the memory that you have of something that you don't know that you have. You know. Wait, and, say that slowly so that my brain can process that. <laughs> Reciprocal memory. It's the, the memory that that of an event or of a thing, a trigger. It's a trigger that you don't know that you have a trigger. So my son has a trigger for asparagus. 
my sensitive one. The other one doesn't even know that the refrigerator exists. Well, he does. <laughs> he gets food out of it. But my uh, my older son, who is very sensitive, who had some surgical trauma and stuff, he he knows that asparagus just left the refrigerator. But he hasn't said to himself, "Oh no, asparagus," right? He doesn't. He, he he didn't make the cognition or the cognitive process of that. What he what he sees is asparagus, and then if I'm in tune enough, I see him be more aggressive with his brother, and he's more dominating. And you can feel the stress, and that's the challenge, right? It's this chronic stress that our little ones are in, right? Because he is now stressed. He takes it out on his brother, which builds up his mom, stop fighting. His brother retaliates, and it just implodes into this negative experience where we potentially have this opportunity to interact with him. So I go up to him, and I get him regulated by doing some heavy work. We make a playful exchange. I give him some choice bombardment. Hey, do you want to help me with this or this? Do you want to eat here or here? He starts to feel confident. He builds up, and by the time he sits at the table, he's ready to try some asparagus, and the stress is gone. And I'm 99% more successful in helping him try something new if I know that I've managed the reciprocal inherent memory. So let's say, for example, you love Lego. And here in Greenville, the Lego store is in the mall. But next to the Lego store is a restroom. And the restroom has a really, really loud dryer in it that everybody yeah. by the door. And so you go to the Lego store and you're so excited and you go to the bathroom and you hear that thing and it hurts your ears. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, you get a reward for school or whatever it is. And dad says, hey, let's go back to the Lego store. And says, I don't like Legos anymore. Yes. Right. And so yep. you self-limit what you love. But he didn't say, oh, that's where the dryer is. He makes the association of that. And then I say to him, hey, buddy, let's go. And then I think about him like, dad, I think I'm scared of the dryer. I don't want to go to the bathroom. There. I say, okay, we'll go to a different bathroom. But let's say I say he's okay. And I say, dude, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And I convince him to go and he trusts me. Then I erode that trust if he walks in that bathroom and it's loud and hurts his ear. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's why I never use the statement, the statement, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't taste bad. You can't do, you, you know, it's not too loud. We don't know what they are experiencing. And in terms of understanding their world, giving them the safe space to explore and play is the only way that you can generalize a functional skill in terms of uh, those memories, replacing them. There's no way that I know otherwise. You're making me rethink Goose Danger Dawson. <laughs> right? So uh huh. I can, that, and that's okay. So, wearing clinician hat, I can recognize what I'm doing right with my patients, but I have struggled because, to carry that over into the world as a mom. That's right. It's hard. And it's hard because you also place demands. You've got to get ready. You've got to go. You got to, you got all these things you got to do. But there is 
there is the good in make the water every night. My son wrote something the other day um, that my very sensitive son who knows these things, right? Who's very your empath, right? Who says, my dad makes me a water every night. And it's that it's a consistent patterned gift, I would say, in terms of security for going to sleep because he used to have night terrors and, they, and sleeping scares him. So, you know, what you do in terms of supporting that vagal response and taking those deep breaths and using the colors does pay off. Yes, it does. It does pay off. And if you could plot the trajectory of where you would be, right? Because we're all on our own journey, right? Where you would be or he would be if some of those strategies weren't in place, I think you'd be in a different place. Mm-hmm. So there um, is value in that. Mm-hmm. One thing that I have seen over the years, right? We we enter we enter the world of therapy, right? Like we're all therapists, we're all called to be healers, right? And and one thing that I see occur is that when we're novice, when we're green, when we're insecure, we look for a quick fix solution to our patients' problems, right? And we also come at our patients from our limited personal experiences and exposures. And we don't always recognize that. So the clinician that I was five years ago varies greatly after going through the trauma with my children and their surgeries and and all of that, which varies greatly from the clinician that I was 10 years earlier when I was freshly seed and I thought I could take on the world and it is very humbling to sit back and look at 15 years of practice and think, my God, I was a friggin' idiot. I didn't know what I didn't know. And then to be here thinking, I can't wait to learn what I don't know. Right. 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 And that's why you and create a podcast so that everybody can yes. learn from that. Right. Well, this was actually Aaron's idea when she was a student. She was like, you know, all these really neat people, we should put them on a podcast and interview them so that way everybody can grow. And I was like, you're a genius. And so then she had to hype me up because she's my hype woman because I have really bad insecurities. <laughs> Thank you, crazy ex-husband. And so life. But here's here's the catch. There is no quick fix solution to these strategies. Feeding therapy is not positive interactions with feeding takes time. Positive interactions with the communication device takes time. And when your families have trauma, when they've endured almost losing their child, when they're not sure about, will this new food bring a trigger, this new allergy or they're coming at the table with that. You have to meet the parents where they are and guide them and coach them into how to interact with their child. Because when we truly engage in pediatric therapy, we are embracing routines-based intervention with the parent coaching model. And, and that's, I only see the child once a week. It should not mean be me driving the session. It should be me seeking to understand and then allowing 
the parents or the caregivers, because it's not always the parents, it could be the grandparents, it could be, I distinctly remember an 18-year-old kid telling me one time, I'm now the parent for this kid because I'm the only one that can safely take this kid, but I don't know how to parent. I'm trying to graduate high school and we've got to meet them where they're at. So go at this. You're in it for the marathon. That's right. Just, yep. You are. Mm. And use the resources that are out there. I would say my journey started with following group and, and, you know, you could read a lot of books um, and, you know, go on this intellectual journey. But uh, the game changers came for me in mentorship with a seasoned clinician because it's, it's something you got to feel and witness. And so Aaron and I are, are in a little group. We're doing, you know, we're working through the playbook and some of the things and just kind of talking about how we can modify and practice some of these. Like I said, for two weeks, I've been practicing just my walk. And it's funny, my, my people like, He's walking. Did, are you hurt? You know, because I'm crawling <laughs> and I'm, you know. Um, but I, I think that's part of it is is that experimentation and and that authentic. You know, just be yourself. Be your authentic, authentic. self. That's mm-hmm. right. Be your authentic self and look at you know uh, in terms of polyvagal theory and a, a, a way to understand and just ask questions and ask yourself. Uh, you know, in this session, how are, how am I going to help this child have a relationship with food? Or how am I going to support this idea that this food is in the room? Or, you know, I think you can take really small steps and think about from a sensory perspective, from a memory perspective, what sort of things you could change. Music has is a, is a, is a factor. Rhythmicity is a factor. When, uh, there's some kids that I have this specifically when they have early birth trauma or if they have trauma in gestation, where if I have a heartbeat sound, their speed and their capacity to engage with their world changes when I have just a heartbeat rhythm in the room, or I just do a rhythmical heartbeat, you know, social uh, or deep pressure or a hug, or, you know, there is, there is something about that social engagement. I think breathing is huge. So watch your posture, kids, and your kids who lose breath support, really work on the breathing, and you'll see their capacity lift. Work on your breathing. You know, um, we all have mirror neurons, right? And they fire whether you want them to or not. We are imitating each other all day. You know, I want my kids. Uh, I want my kids to be a reflection of of my my faith and my soul, and not my parenting skills. Yes. Right? Yes, right? absolutely. absolutely. So, so creating those moments and, and you know, really trying to connect and working on my breath supports their capacity. And that's, that's what we all can do, right? And like you said, it's check yourself at the door, take a deep breath, because, you know, you're right. The therapy that I provide the day, the day of payroll is a little different than the therapy I provide the day <laughs> after payroll. Because I, yeah, I wear the stress. Uh huh. You know, the, the day the therapy that I provide the day that Goose has a spelling test, the kid's right. brilliant. He's in a school where half the day is taught in Mandarin. He has almost a hundred in in math, which is mm-hmm. taught in Mandarin, and he's doing math like a couple 
grades above. Spelling test. I he inherited my capability to have difficulty with <laughs> multisyllabic words and then mm -hmm. diphthong vowels. Good God Almighty, right? Right. And I know that I have to focus harder. Actually, there I told Bear a quote. Bear's my tiny scientist. He actually mm -hmm. he will be an excellent physician one day as long as we can get him through fraternities in college. And and I told him, I was like, Bubby, mommy read somewhere that you need 13 hugs a day, to, no, 12 hugs a day to survive. Mm -hmm. And so he'll come up by me and he'll go, mommy, I need my 13 because 12 <laughs> is not enough. So he needs 13 and he's, right. it, yeah, but it's, it's key. And, and when you, you said one thing that I have to circle back around to, mm -hmm. the value of mentorship. Yeah. That is, and true mentorship for every season of your life. And I have been on a new journey where I'm serving as clinic coordinator for a new grad program, right? So I, I have strength in the skills that I have as a PFD clinician. However, I know that they are not sufficient for where I want to be. So I have sought out mentorship from the greats in the fields. I made them be my friends and mentor me. <laughs> right. and, and, and But I right. do, yeah, I made them be my friends. But when I shifted gears into this role where three days a week I'm on campus and I'm leading these students, I had to seek out different mentors to fill my cup there. And, and folks, I'm going to say this because it has been on my heart very much lately, and we're actually going to do an episode on ethics regarding this topic. It came about our LLR license that, that you have to renew your license every two years in South Carolina as an SLP. And... On my renewal notice this year, it said, don't be a social media statistic, social media ethics violations or social media violations are on the rise, something to this effect. And I have witnessed individuals across the country posting their subject matter expertise knowledge, and they have but a handful of years of experience. And this has made me very, very, very apprehensive. I do not call myself an expert. I, I know enough to be dangerous, but Asha's laid it out that when there are only four board certified specialty certifications and you have to meet this extensive requirement in order to call yourself a specialist and pass this extensive board exam, which Dylan, one day I want to do, but I have test anxiety and I puke as soon as I take a multiple choice test. So like that's on the back burner, but, um, <laughs> my God, anxiety, but yes, but this is, so folks, when you're seeking out your mentorship, you need to vet the mentors and trust, but verify. That is one thing army husband and Navy family taught. Trust, but verify, right? So we give you the information every week. We open our hearts to you and you trust us. But we also have made sure that the information is verifiable because we have the greats in our field that nobody hear about. And those are the clinical researchers. Those are the, the professors that are actually digging in deep to get the evidence that I feel like, honestly, I feel like my mission in life is to be the bridge between those that research and those that do. And, and this is the, this is the opportunity that God blessed us with, but that's, that's a big soapbox, but 
I just, this has been heavy on my heart for an extended period of time. And this, you talking about the vital importance of mentorship is the perfect opportunity to go for it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't be the clinician where I am today, you know, uh, in, in terms of my growth and certainly my, my limited understanding, you know, I, I had to, I had to figure out how to manage my emotions. Cause you know, I had my dad who was traumatic and I had this anxiety about wanting to help. Right. And I realized that I was projecting that and I, I didn't know necessarily exactly how uh, the emotions were within me and how to manage them. And I realized that I'm really good at puzzles, like, like visual puzzles. Like if I do a 50, 1500 piece puzzle, then I can find a little piece. I'm like, I know where you belong. Yes. To, I love puzzles. That's right. And you get to that point, you're like, Oh, I found your place. And that little tap, that tap, tap, tap. And it goes in is the most satisfying experience in the world for me. <laughs> However, if I do that with my own emotions, it, it helps me be more authentic. And there was no way on this planet that I would have come to that conclusion on my own. It, it took someone to show me, uh, to explain it to me, to see it. So I agree. I think where practice hits the road, where helping parents, uh, this is where I'm gonna jump on my soapbox for a second. And that is called a magic moment. So the magic moment is what us that keeps us clinicians so fired up to be clinicians. It's that moment when we connect with a child or an infant where they produce something that they potentially were not capable of before or that they trust us enough to be able to make that leap, that, that, that joy, right? And you see the sparkle, you see it. Those moments belong to parents. Because the drudgery of trying to go to 100 therapy sessions, trying to clean thousands of diapers for your kids, for working on all these things erodes that, that feeling that you are not responsible, that feeling that you have done something wrong, um, and that feeling that you cannot help your child and it's very easy and it becomes really easy to give your child to someone else and say here spend 30 hours with them and fix them for me or yes. here do this or here's mm -hmm. this medication fix them for me and mm -hmm. and i'm not speaking against any of those things because i feel like they have value but the unintended consequence is that the parent backs out and we need them and yes. the child needs them. And so I feel very strongly about creating the variables and the opportunities for that magic moment and then giving it to the parent, which is hard in COVID, right? That's, yes. that's really hard. But if you have that opportunity and you see it at the cusp and you give it to the parent, you will experience joy as a clinician like you never have in your past. Yes. This is why we do routines based. This is why we do parent coaching. And yes, absolutely. A thousand percent. Holy cow. Aaron told me I was going to love you, but like, oh my God, you're coming back. We have to talk more. <laughs> yeah. I might need some structure though, so we can keep it on a straight line. But now this is really fun. And and honestly, you know, I think just the, uh, the idea of impacting and, 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 you know, creating a framework around connecting is really powerful. And um, I think that it's something that we can continue to explore.
Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.